Okay, that means we're continuing our series out of the life of Solomon. It's our second last in the series. We'll be concluding this series next week. We're calling it The God Pursuit. And what a joy, let me say again, those of you online, all of you here in the house, thank you for, for being a part of this, uh, this wonderful day. And uh, wonderful because of God's presence, because of hope, and because of uh, who the Lord is. Today I want to talk about God's abundance in you, God's abundance in you. And we, we come to this kind of a subject because not only does Solomon become the wisest person as a result of God's supernatural work in his life, but he becomes the richest person of his generation, the richest king of his time. And that's described for us, if we're, we're going to go back to 1 Kings and that account of Solomon today, in, in chapter 10 and verse 23. So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. Especially that richer piece is what we're going to pick up on today. People from every nation came to consult him and to hear the wisdom of God that, that God had given him. And as they did year after year, everyone who visited brought him gifts of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, horses, mules. Wouldn't you love everybody that visited your house? To bring silver and gold and clothes. Maybe not weapons, but, uh, and maybe not horse mules either, but horses, yeah. So Solomon built up a huge force of choices, chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. And he stationed many of them in the chariot cities in, and some near him in Jerusalem. I actually visited in Israel some of those chariot cities. And God made silver, get this, he was so rich and he brought such wealth to Judah that he made silver as plentiful in Jerusalem as stone. Oh, a piece of silver or a rock, what's the difference? It was so common. And valuable cedar timber, we might, might say mahogany, was as common as sycamore fig trees that grow in the foothills of Jerusalem that you find everywhere. And what will unfold for us is the tension of living in abundance and living in spite of abundance. And that's exactly the pathway that God's abundance takes our lives. He wants us to live in His blessing and His provision and His abundance, but also to live and to thrive in spite of what that abundance can do to us. That tension Solomon picks up a little bit on in Proverbs 15, verse 16, where he writes, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. And uh, later in his life, Solomon begins to taste real turmoil, and he's also filthy, richy, rich. And he, be, he begins to realize that somehow abundance does not define the center of the most important things in life. He said, I'd rather be poor and, 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 and live with the fear of God and, and, and live at peace than have great wealth with turmoil. Solomon doesn't actually write Proverbs 30. It's a, a man by the name of Agur. But... Agur writes this. In fact, he writes out a prayer to God in Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me 
neither poverty nor riches. Now that's quite a prayer request. God, don't make me too poor and don't make me too rich. Otherwise, then he gives the why. I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? I mean, I may have so much, I don't feel I need you anymore, Lord. Or I may become poor and do something I never thought I'd do, actually steal and compromise my values and in the process dishonor the name of the Lord my God. So don't make me too rich, don't make me too poor as a way of saying, um, God, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned about what abundance could do to my life. Well, as a baseline, let's start with living in abundance because this is part of our life in Christ. The Bible says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Sometimes those blessings are, are material things that help us in life, not always, but we, we are called to live in an abundance from the Lord, in a fullness. I, I, I don't want to constantly live with this sense of scarcity and God's barely just eking out, barely what I need because he can hardly tolerate me and, okay, I'll help you at least survive. That's not quite the dimension in which God comes to us. He comes to us with kindness. He comes to us with a, a heart to want to bless us. And so how do we respond to that? Well, we'll receive it gratefully. We, we just, you know, we, many people feel guilty that God's blessed them with maybe more than other people in other parts of the world. And I've just found where I've felt guilty about it in the past, that in the past, but it doesn't get me anywhere. I mean, why not be grateful for what God's given you? Because uh, you can't change the world. But if God is blessing you, and there are times he just sends you postcards from heaven, he sends you love packages, he sends you things like, I don't have to do this for you, but I just want to do something special for you to let you know I love you. And that's why Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, writes to the interim pastor at Ephesus. His name was Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But tell them to put their hope in God. And the amazing thing is he could have put a period there. But he adds this one sentence, this one phrase to the sentence. He said, tell them to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So if you're guilty about being blessed, you're going to have to get over that. I mean, God does have your enjoyment and he's kind. And why does he give us good things? So, because he's just that kind of God. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment doesn't want your life, the devil wants your life constantly devastated and worked over, lacking, but he gives us every good thing for our enjoyment. So we receive it greatly. I mean, we receive it greatly, yes, and gratefully. We just, what do you do to God's abundance and his blessing in your life? Receive it thankfully and gracefully. Don't fight it. Don't feel guilty over it. But the other thing we do is use that abundance to make a difference. You use it to make a difference. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 18, the very next verse, still talking about the rich. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing 
to share. In other words, if you're not worried about starving to death in the next month, you would be somewhat rich compared to a lot of the world. Well, that, that doesn't sound too reassuring. No. If you don't worry about starving to death in the next month, there's some abundance in your life. And he says, there's something we do. We receive, don't fight it. It's part of God's kindness. He's given us every good thing to enjoy. He just loves us. He's out there for our welfare. But, but just think what you can do with abundance, with more than you absolutely need to change the world. Thank you for giving to the Footprint Fund. Thank you for, thank you for allowing us to send thousands of dollars to refugee relief right now in Ukraine. Thank you for helping us keep 200 missionaries on the ground around uh, our, our, all year long because of your giving. Thank you for making a difference. Thank you for those of you. I know some of you write notes to the church and say, I just feel like maybe a single mom needs this money, and it's money you could keep for yourself, but you're giving it away. Some of you are right. I know there's hungry people in our community, and so I'm going to give away what I have. And some of you, even the abundance in your life has given you some discretionary time, and you're giving it away to make a difference. If God's given you abundance, if God's given you a little extra with time and with money, this, we, we give it away. He said, command the rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds and be generous and willing to share. Because Paul will also write in Ephesians what I think is God's general will, his general will for us financially. He said, anyone who's been stealing must steal no more. That's not his will, to be ripping other people off to have what we need. But you work with your hands. You do something useful with your own hands. You work hard. You have a career. You work. You, you just don't expect people to be giving you handouts. You work. Why? So that you may have something to share with those in need. And so it seems to me that God's saying, my general will is that you have what you need. Maybe not your greed, but your need. Heal me. And you have more left over. That would be his general will for your life when it comes to abundance. How much more? Some of you already have become quite wealthy. Others of you may be on your way, and you may never become hugely wealthy, but to the degree that you live out God's will for you, that you work, and you end up having more than you, than you need to meet your needs and, and have the life that God's given you. And it's with that that you can make a difference in the world. My wife and I gave away more money in 2021. I just finished my income taxes than, than we've ever given away in our lives. And, and I was just going, God, I don't know. You know, there's an old cliche that says you can't outgive God. And, and it's just God's will. I mean, God's vested in you using his blessings and the abundance to change our world. And to reach every human being with the gospel of Jesus Christ and alleviate human suffering and bring justice to our world in the name of Jesus who can change people's lives. And, and this, this, is, this is living in his abundance, realizing that I'm not going to fight it, but I am going to use it to make a difference in the world. The problem is that abundance can take us a very different direction. The famous preacher Chuck Swindoll once said, for every 100 people that God could probably find that he could trust with a trial or a temptation, he can probably only find one person who he could trust with abundance. Just think of that. 
I think it's much harder to stay faithful with passionate hearts for Jesus and for his mission when we're overcome with abundance than when we're going through a hard time. Because when we're, go- why, why would, would Swindoll say that? Because when you're going through a hard time, you feel a desperation for God. But when you are lulled to sleep in abundance, you lose that desperation for God. And so I want to talk about living in, in spite of abundance. Living in spite of abundance. And it starts right here. You're going to have to fight hard for your heart. You're going to have to fight hard to stay spiritually alive and obedient to the Lord. When you have more than you need, I don't know, you know, I just said I gave away more than I ever have last year, but the more over the years my income grew and God just seemed to keep providing in ways I, I, I wouldn't have even predicted. As that happened, you know what? I just found myself having to fight a tendency to be clutchier and clutchier I've long abandoned the myth that it's easier to give more when you have more. I mean, no. Your heart goes the other way if it's untamed. But even worse than what you're clutching, it replaces the affection for the things of this world because you have so much of it can begin to replace the affection for and hunger for God. And I think it's a fight. It's a fight to keep your heart spiritually alive at the same time when you have a lot of things. It just is. Because, because, you know, you're not desperate for God anymore. And when you're not desperate for God anymore, then you start laying back, and then you start getting spiritually careless. And this is exactly what started to happen in Solomon's life. I want to take you back to, to, to something Moses said over 400 years before Solomon lived. It's in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. He said, I know you guys. Israel didn't have a king at that time. He said, I know you. I, I know you're going to want to have a king someday. I know you're going to want to rely on that king instead of relying on your God. And God will give you what you want. It wasn't the best. It wasn't his first choice for them. But sure enough, eventually Israel wanted a king. Solomon was their third king. And, and, and he said, you're going to want a king. But he said, here's the warning. I say to those kings in your future, verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more horses For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Now, if you have a horse, and if you have a a ranch just outside of Springfield, I know some of you do, you own horses, that's a wonderful thing. This is not a down on horses sermon. But this is a down on not trusting God anymore sermon because you got a lot around you. And the horses were these symbols of might and power. And for a king, they were the ego status of their might and their power. And they were a sign, just like Israel even wanting a king in the first place, was a sign that we want God replacements in our lives. We don't want to be fundamentally dependent on God like we have been in the past. We, like when he delivered us out of Egypt. No. And, and, and he's warning them, don't go back that way. Don't accumulate symbols 
worldly power instead of trust in God. And definitely, don't go back to Egypt because you got delivered from there. So, just a little reminder of the verses, uh, two of the verses we read up front to start. Remember that? 1 Kings 10, verse 26. So Solomon built up a few huge force of chariots and horses. In fact, he had 1,400 chariots. Multiply that by two, two horses per chariot, he'd only need 2,800 horses. Instead, he accumulated 12,000 horses. He had to build whole cities just to house his horses in direct disobedience to the law of God. And on top of that, verse 28, Solomon, Solomon's horses were imported from where? The very place God said, you're not going, but do not go back there. Instead, all his horses were imported from Egypt. Another direct disobedience to God. And I don't know that Solomon was sitting on his couch just in his leisure time just trying to think up another way to be disobedient to God. For much of his life he had a heart for God. But instead his abundance just started to delude him. He thought the rules don't apply to me anymore. And why not? Look, I've already got 5,000 horses. Why not 6,000? And I got 6,000. Why not 8,000? And I mean, God hasn't exactly struck me dead yet, so let's do 10,000. How about 12,000? I like the number 12. 12,000 horses. And he becomes spiritually careless and distracted by all of the things he owns. The C.S. Lewis Institute, a number of years ago, wrote an article on God's blessing and abundance. And they said, inattention to God, that's the lack of attention to God, and his grace is a perennial danger to those of us in America who live with an abundance of material resources and enjoy the ease, the comfort, and the pleasures they afford. Preoccupation with these blessings can easily distract us from God and lead, listen, and it can lead, this is what's happening all over the place, in places where, where we just experience God's blessing, ironically, it can also lead to a cooling of our love for him and for our neighbor. And in the end, we allow God's blessing to displace God himself in our hearts. And I just look at what Jesus said. He used this metaphor of the word of God being like a seed planted in our hearts. And he said... He said, our hearts are like soil, and some of the seed of God's word falls in people who, first of all, receive it and believe in him and try to serve him, but it's thorny ground. Luke 8, verse 14, the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life, listen, choked by life's worries and riches, riches and pleasures and here's the problem. It's not that we fight God's blessings, but we have to fight hard to make sure they don't ruin our hearts. Because he said life worries and riches and pleasures choke us spiritually, and as a result, we do not mature. And one of the curses on the American church today is our shallowness. It is our distractions. 
In fact, over the last several decades, the center of gravity in the Christian world has moved away from the Western world and places like America to the global south where there's still a desperation for God and there's faith for the supernatural. And, 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 and at the same time, many of our churches, it's like we're lethargic. It's like we're powerless. It's like we've lost our passion for Jesus and our mission. And this is the danger of living in a place where we become so distracted with God's blessings that those very blessings begin to displace God himself. And we have to fight hard. It starts with repentance. It starts, oh God, forgive me. If I've lost my hunger for you, if I've lost my fire for you, if I'm mainly preoccupied with all these wonderful things you've blessed me, my God, you've given them to me for my enjoyment. I don't need to feel guilty about them, but God, and I want to use them to make a difference in my world, but oh God, let them never replace you or make me careless when it comes to obedience to you. Let them not seduce me. Not, let, let them not make me think I'm exempt from the rules. They only apply to other people because look how God's blessed me. And then I've got, I must have a special track with God because my investments did particularly well this year. And if they did, praise God. But don't let them ever seduce you and make you displace God in your heart. And the only other thing I want to say here is is that while we fight for our hearts to stay hungry and desperate for God in spite of more than enough blessing that we enjoy every day, we also need to not let, because here's what else happens, things start defining meaning in our life. We, we, get, we confuse life's things with life's meaning. And we forget what Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15. Then, he, then Jesus said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then he gives us the why behind that what. He said, be careful what's going on in your hearts. All kinds of greed. Be on guard against it. Why? Because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. God says, I'm going to bless you for all things for you to enjoy, but that's not what life's all about. Life, those things color life, but they're not the essence of life. Your life does not, meaning is not attached to anything you own. So Solomon had to learn this the hard way. Solomon pulls back the curtain for us in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. He just pulls back the curtain, and he says, here, I want to let you in because I got really wealthy and really famous. And I, I had the opportunity, and I was very smart. And so I had the opportunity that most other people in the world don't have to try everything. I had the resources to try everything. And so he takes a run at life. And he starts, because he's so smart, he starts with education. He does the education thing. And he says, I decided to study wisdom because God gave me all this wisdom and, and foolishness. It's like, it's like 
He even explores the margin between extreme genius and insanity. And he said, I just do it. I like to just say he got the, he went for the P, his PhD. Okay, he just went for his PhD. And he ended up saying, because could life be defined that way with more education? And he says, well, here's what I found. With much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. And every student in the house said amen to that. Yes, I know that. Okay, that didn't work, so he gave up going to class. And he decided to do the party life. He tried the party thing. He said, I just went after every form of entertainment and pleasure I could. He tells us at the beginning of chapter 2, I went after alcohol, I went to parties, I got drunk, I did everything I could possibly do to entertain myself and find pleasure. And he's not even finished describing all his party escapades before he starts coming to this conclusion in chapter 2, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I'm already empty. And he's yet to start talking about alcohol in his life. So, the education thing, that's leaving him disillusioned. The party thing, that's leaving him pretty, just pretty, feeling pretty stupid. And so he tries the consumer thing. He goes for materialism and sexual gratification. And in verse 8 of Ecclesiastes 2, I amassed silver and gold for myself. We've already read about that in 1 Kings 10. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I, and I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. Everything he wanted sexually and materially, he acquired for himself. So you put the education thing together with the party thing together with the consumer thing, and you would think this guy's living the American dream, except Solomon disagrees. He says, here's where it left me, verse 17. So I hated life. Well, that's helpful. He said, I hated life. And a few verses later, I found out, he said, Verse 24, that a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction with their own toil. I mean, you might as well just take life with gratefulness and do your best. But this too, he says, I see is from the hand of God. And then he cracks the door on an incredible revelation for us. For this too, I see is from the hand of God for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? I love those stories of people get saved. And they say, I've actually had this experience when I feel like the Holy Spirit has dramatically touched me, set me free at moments. And I open my eyes and the room literally looked brighter. I love when people come to Christ. They said, I woke up the next day, the grass looked greener, the, the sky looked bluer. 
uh, people said, even the blessings in my life, I just flat out enjoy them more because I'm not taking out of them more than what they were intended to give me. They were not intended to define the meaning of life. The center of meaning in life is not found in anything you own or anything you're blessed with. They're found in the Lord. Without Him, who can enjoy everything? So as you know, of these three, I especially did the education thing nine straight years. I got my PhD in aerospace engineering, and I'll never forget the day I, I successfully defended my dissertation. And they passed me. They put me in the hallway, and I paced nervously, and they brought me in and said, you're, you're, you're good. All of a sudden, anticlimactic, nine years of education over. I thought to myself, well, what do I do now? My next thought was, I'll go back to my office and plop my books down there and walk home which is what I did. And on that walk home, I had an encounter with God because I tasted. I remember thinking, God, I just accomplished something that many people will never have the privilege of accomplishing. I got a PhD in a very sophisticated, difficult field. And the next thing that just overwhelmed me was me walking down that sidewalk saying, and oh Jesus, this would be so empty without you. I know some of you have heard me tell that story before, but it marked my life. Without him, how can any blessing have anything to be enjoyed? Because Solomon was going after this and he was trying to take out of parties and out of education and even legitimate pleasure and out of possessions. He was trying to extract from them something that they were never intended to give in the first place, and that's why they leave you empty the true meaning and fulfillment in life without him who can, find, can eat or find enjoyment. That's why Jesus said in verse 10 of John 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come. And you know, the devil wants to do this. He wants to leave you empty. And he may do it by ravaging you just like Ukraine is being ravaged by the Russian armies right now. And people are running, having everything else taken away in their life. But it struck me during worship this morning that some spirit-filled Ukrainians, where they're able to gather this morning in churches, are probably singing some of the same worship songs we're singing, saying, but Jesus, hallelujah, I am not alone like we sang today. But Lord, yours is the victory and the power. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. They're singing it in faith. They're singing it in the face of everything that would look like blessing being stripped from their lives. But they have what counts and what's eternal and what's forever. Jesus said the thief may ravage and that's what he wants to do. He wants to leave you empty and unfulfilled. But I, Jesus said, have come that you might have life. And he could have stopped there. But he said and life to the full. He's not necessarily saying your investments might do better this year. He's saying, in me, I actualize everything I've created you to be as a human being. And everything of meaning comes from me. And so that's why, and I close with this amazing call for us out of, out of Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. If you've come to know Christ, and if you don't know Jesus, I encourage you to turn your life to him today. But since we have been 
raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Jesus lost everything. He became poor so that we could be filled with forgiveness and filled with his resurrection spirit. He died on the cross. He took away the barriers. He loved you before you loved him. He comes with grace and fullness and his other blessings come on the heels of him changing your heart and putting himself. Who can find, who, who can eat and find enjoyment in life at all unless he is at the center of everything? He's come to do that. So Paul is saying, since that's true, and I ask the worship team to come, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. That's exactly what we've been talking about in these weeks, living a Jesus attentive life. Like Jesus who often withdrew and went to lonely places to pray, especially when the crowds were growing all around him, especially when popularity was growing all around him, especially when things would stroke his ego were growing all around him. He kept finding the lonely places because he said he was fighting the battle for his heart, and he was saying, I must stay attentive to the things that are not of this earth. And whether you have a lot of time to break away to lonely places on a busy day or not, we walk with him all day. We don't set our mind. Yeah, we're negotiating things of this world. Yeah, yeah, we got to take care of our investments and make sure our house is repaired and all of these wonderful and terrible things. But the fact is, we don't, we're not defined by those things. We don't find our meaning in those things. And we navigate those things not with paying excessive attention to them, but we pay constant attention to him. We're walking with him all day. We're living in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We're distracted with his life and what Jesus is doing. Our hearts are full of the things that are on his heart. And I want to tell you, clutter in our lives, even blessings in our lives, can displace the heart of Jesus. And so Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And when you appear with him in glory, you have no more bank account. You have no more house. You have no more all this stuff that you substituted God for. It's just not there. But you have him. And so we're going to go out grateful for his blessing. We're going to use it to change our world. And we're going to keep our hearts set upon him. We're going to live in holy affection. We're going to abide in Christ. We're going to pay more attention to him than things of this earth. Because we have risen with Christ.